0: My name is Mish Robinson. I have worked in the classical and choral world for 20 years, first as an outreach manager, creating and delivering performing arts projects to the community and latterly as a freelance choral conductor. Coming from a non-musical background, educated at a local comp, unable to read music until I was 18, I struggled in the classical music world From the minute I got to music college, there were rules, a language, and people I didn't understand. I very much felt like an imposter and essentially have been trying to make sure that doesn't happen to others ever since. I want to use this podcast to discover the real person behind the instrument, hearing their voice as we open out the conversation with those who may be considered the mavericks of the classical music industry those who haven't taken a traditional route, whatever that really means. I want to uncover the wonderful things that are now igniting this music world. For me, music is about the people. They are the conduits of this art form. They are the ones that have the ability to use music to tell stories and to touch the soul. Music's superpower. In this podcast, I find out what people think and how people really feel about the classical music world. Michael Betteridge was fascinated by music from a very young age. Never really taking the conventional route, despite what may have been a conventional education, Michael has taken opportunities that have shaped the musician he is today. A composer who works in many environments, but with a focus on high quality community music making, He is most well known for the creation and being musical director of the Sunday Boys, a low voice choir rooted in the queer community. This groundbreaking choir, or family as they are often referred as, are involved in projects that use music to create conversations about many 21st century issues, as well as interesting ideas about how to run a 21st century choir. Michael, who I have to admit I know very well due to our love of working within the amateur choral world, came and talked about how the classical music industry has and is changing, and also how we can support adult amateur musicians to be the best they can be. We put the classical music world to rights. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. I am going to start straight away and ask you to tell me how initially you got into music.
1: Well, how did I get into music? It's a long time ago now <laughs> when I think about this question. So I used to say I grew up in a household that wasn't musical. Right. I think what I'm realizing now, I grew up in a household where my parents perhaps didn't have access to music growing up. Mm-hmm. So who knows what they would have done with their music. But um, we had a piano at home. We had a very old piano that was just there that my mum really wanted to have. I don't know why, she wanted it there. And aged about three, I was fascinated by it. Absolutely fascinated by it playing it. And my parents went, right, okay, this is something he's interested in. Let's get him lessons. And that's kind of where it all began. Um, How old
0: were you when you started lessons?
1: uh, Just before my fourth birthday. Oh my word! Which is ridiculous, because we probably recommend as practitioners, you (laughs) probably shouldn't start there. You should probably do like circle singing and kind of mums and toddlers or whatever. But um, it was a really interesting start in that respect. Um, And I went with a teacher who was quite traditional, quite old school. But uh, the sad thing about it is as I got to about five or six, he tried to put me through my grade one, and I wasn't ready. Um, well, I say I wasn't ready. The story goes, this is what I'm told, but um, the story goes that I was ready, but he just wanted me to do really, 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 really well. So, really pushed me. Oh, wow. So, I had quite a gap actually. And then I started again a little bit later in my, I think I was seven or eight. When most people start
0: okay so what happened after that
1: so i had this gap because it was just too scary to do grade one mm-hmm. um i was quite an anxious child i think i still am quite an anxious person that's something that's part of me quite sensitive and anxious
0: i mean just to say for anyone listening who doesn't know about the grade system i mean to do grade one at the age of four or five is pretty much unheard of isn't it you do that seven eight nine ten I mean, I did my piano grade one when I was 15. So Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think it was that thing where a slightly different time in terms of music education and my parents didn't know who was the right person to send me to as a teacher and he was local and everyone said he was great. But, you know, I'd come back from lessons going, oh yeah, it was great and, you know, we'd move on. But it was my second teacher who was a keyboard teacher who kind of was my first real inspiration because he saw in me, I guess, this young person who didn't want to play the notes on the page wanted to go what does that do what happens if i do this instead and what happens if i'm playful or change things around and he kind of took that and went right okay well let's teach you chords let's teach you harmony let's teach you what happens if you take the melody and put it in the left hand what do you do this so he gave me this kind of toolkit approach which meant that when i get to my got to my teen years it was thinking about doing music later on, I didn't have some of the technical stuff in terms of the playing the keys. Right. But I had all of this kind of all of these ways of working that, you know, are still really useful for me today.
0: Did you then go on to music college? Was music college an ambition or studying music was an ambition early on?
1: The ambition was always to do something I'm doing air quotes here, proper. <laughs> go and do a proper degree. Um, which I think was also slightly encouraged by my parents who were apprehensive about what a career in the arts meant, yeah. which I totally understand, given how precarious they are, and even more so now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always going to be economics. and then oh, I did wow. I know, I know, and I did a summer work experience at an economics firm. Lovely people, but I suddenly went this, isn't me? this just isn't me. So I told my mum, I'm going to do a music degree. Um, And she almost ran a red light. We were in the car. (laughs) Um, And so they were a little bit apprehensive. But I went to um, University of Manchester is where I went. Um, It was a good university, It had a really wide ranging course. And I just came to this city and went, I love it.
0: Okay, so you came to Manchester, uh, excited about doing music? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Excited about the city? Mm -hmm. What happened?
1: So I came to Manchester and I went, oh my goodness, everyone here is so good. (laughs) Everyone here is so talented. And there was this part of me that was, you're very lucky. And there's part of me that was a little bit terrified.
0: So is this where this grounding that you feel you didn't have in those technical skills, Mm. you suddenly became, you know, you felt exposed perhaps?
1: Unstuck, yeah. I remember there was a joke in a lecture where a lecturer said, (laughs) Um, Who here doesn't like Beethoven? Which I didn't realise was a joke, so I put my hand up and everyone giggled. And kind of being a bit of the class clown, I think, in that year group, it was okay. And it was like water off a ducks back then. I guess I was younger, naive, and thought, oh, you know, people find me funny. But there was this sense of a lot of people had been playing in orchestras. I never played an orchestral instrument. A lot of people had sung in choirs, National Youth Choir, Great Britain. A lot of people knew each other already at Manchester, and it was like, How? How? I I did musicals. I did musicals at school. They were fun. West Side Story. I know Bernstein. Um, So there's just a little bit of going, oh, I don't quite fit in. Okay. But I I say that I made so many friends and so many wonderful friends and colleagues who are either in music today or not anymore. Um, And it was a fantastic place to be.
0: It's interesting that you say that because uh, I've picked up on this before and and my own experiences as well of going into that sort of music environment. It does feel like there's a community that you have become part of growing up. Or not, And within that community, there's kind of a load of rules and a load of knowledge and a a load of stuff that going into for the first time, I mean, I went to music college and the only opera singer I'd ever heard of was Leslie Garrett. And people sneered at that. I mean, Mm. I love Leslie and I didn't understand why. Was that a similar thing for you or was university not quite as bad as that?
1: I think university as an experience was better than uh, other training experiences. I think for me personally being really honest I enjoyed University of Manchester more than Music College when I went to my okay. Masters at the Royal Northern and um, we'll probably get onto that but part of that I think was I met a lot of different people doing different things at University of Manchester fantastic department was then, still is but a real diversity of people in terms of what they wanted to get out of a degree and what they wanted from their music. There was a little bit of everything, mm. which is very me. And being so green, I came to it. I was like, oh, I'll do a little bit of singing in the musical. I'll do a little bit of choral singing. I'll do a little bit of composing, a little bit of academia. And that worked really well for me at Manchester with this yeah, really diverse group.
0: Okay. Did you go in as a composer?
1: I went in as a general musician. Okay. So I think you had to have then a grade eight, and grade five piano and three A's I didn't get that so there was part of me that went oh I'm really lucky to be here because I didn't and I discovered that loads of people didn't get those grades, so it's fine but there was a kind of um, sense of it was a general music degree and I did go in actually thinking I wanted to be a composer but that disappeared a little bit over my time and then came back a little bit later
0: okay tell me a bit about that
1: so I think I was so shocked by the range of music Mm. um, that existed I hadn't been exposed to 21st century classical music at school, despite the fact that I was very lucky to go to a state school, but a state school where loads of the staff composed. So it was very normalised for me when I was 16, 17, 18. And it was very open. I think when I came to university, and this might have been me being green or naive or young or new to it, but there was part of me there was part of this kind of going, you need to compose a certain way, that I felt. Mm. And whether that was there or not, there was this energy around, these are what composers are doing nowadays, and you should be mimicking it. And it's a tricky one, because as a composer and teaching composition, you want to be encouraging your young people that you're working with, or whoever you're working with, to explore different sounds and ideas. But it, was, it didn't feel quite me yet. Right. I wasn't ready to kind of go, I want to hear all these new sounds and experiment with them. Yeah, I was a little bit insecure about that. And I think that turned me off for composition for a bit whilst at Manchester.
0: So was that a case of maturity? Was that a case of needing to grow up a bit, of needing to kind of go and just try something else that felt more comfortable at the time?
1: I think there's some of that. Um, I think for me, it was such a candy store going to Manchester. <laughs> There was so much on offer and I think there was also just a insecurity, as I said earlier, about all these very, very confident young people who kind of had experienced this before. And I discovered later, you know, I talked about the diversity at Manchester, I'm talking about in terms of what people wanted to achieve from that course or be at university for. I think in other, when we use diversity nowadays, talking more broadly, it wasn't a very diverse course. There are a lot of people that are privately educated, who had many, many opportunities that I didn't know existed. Mm. So I think a lot of people came into that space with a very, very confident sense of who they were. Um, And you thrive. If you know who you are, and I think we'll return to this quite a lot in this conversation, but if you know who you are aged 18, or pretend you do, or show you do you get further because that is our world as musicians it's about that knowing thyself and being a performer, isn't
0: it? That's it, and then kind of coming in at the, as the full package, whatever that means. Yeah, that's really interesting because that was certainly my experience. I mean, having come from a state school, mm-hmm. never really mixed with people from private school, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, it, I'd never seen anything like it in terms of the confidence in young people. We, I, yeah, I really kind of felt I was bumbling my way through where other people were, were just kind of... Yeah, being themselves, knowing what that was. Okay, so obviously you said you came back to composing and then went on to music college is mm. that right okay so how was that different what happened there
1: so there was a throughout my undergraduate there was this who am i what do i want to do i love music oh, i'll do a little bit of musical theater i auditioned for the royal academy as a musical director so it's that musical theater world that i still dip into every so often um so there was this what am i doing and then took a few years out oh, uh right. worked for birmingham contemporary music group who are a fantastic organization and kind of got a sense of what the real world was like oh, okay. um, and that was a real eye-opener on many levels that's where a lot of my um learning and participation work came in and that's really where it all started for me but I knew I wanted to progress my composing further so I had several options and in the end I decided to stay in Manchester and go to the Royal Northern. They offered me a scholarship which even now I'm like a scholarship I mean my goodness I must have been doing something right.
0: Just before we go on though what made you take a year out? I mean, that's, I think that's really mature at mm. that age, you know, especially in music where there's this kind of sense of, you know, you've got to do it, you've got to do it immediately. You've got to, you've got to be the best you can all the time, mm. but what made you put the pause on? Well, I suppose you didn't because you went to BCMG, but yeah, what, what was it?
1: I think it's that sense of, again, not quite knowing yeah. and being nervous about making a choice I think, if I remember correctly, it's such a long time ago, I can't remember if I applied for a postgrad at that point. Um, But if I did, it doesn't kind of stick in my head as something I really missed. I think the job at BCMG was like, this is something different and exciting, and I think that felt right. And I was still composing. I think there was also part of me that still didn't feel ready. Mm -hmm. I did really well in my undergraduate as a composer. Um, you know, I came top of my year, if I remember correctly, in composition, which is quite a big thing if you look at some of the people in my year and what they've done and what they've achieved. Fantastic people, fantastic composers. So that is quite an accolade, if you believe a mark system to mark compositions is important. There's a <laughs> debate there, isn't there? Um, but even so, it shows that I cared about something and people in industry, in academia are going, well, this is good work. But even then, I didn't feel ready. Mm-hmm. Um, Even throughout my master's, like I look back at my master's and go, I did so many lovely projects and wrote music that I was really, some of it I was proud of at the time, but I feel very, very detached from that time and detached from the learning, actually.
0: Okay, but I am assuming that doing that post-grad at music college obviously sent you on a path?
1: I wouldn't be where I am as a composer and an artist without the Royal Northern. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that my time there was perfect mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. I think if anyone says that though by any aspect of their education, they're not quite telling the truth. Yeah. But it was a fantastic environment in many ways because I've met people and still work with people who I'm very close to mm-hmm. as friends and collaborators. The opportunities you get as a composer, I got to write for an orchestra. The music was looking back at you like, oh my goodness, but I learned so much from having that opportunity. Yeah. You know, now I think back and think, oh, you made that huge mistake then, but that was great. On the other hand, I think it's the same problem I was describing when I was doing my undergraduate, you know, that kind of sense of self and that confidence that you saw, that I saw at University of Manchester. Um, was doubled, tripled, quadrupled. You've yeah. got some of the best young composers in the UK. It was a very, it's a very good department. It was when I was there, it still is now, producing really diverse and interesting music. But these people, these young composers, on the surface anyway, know who they are and are not afraid of putting themselves out there. My insecurity might have been part of this, but sometimes in a way where there was feedback on my music, in seminars, and I took it very personally. Mm. And I reflect a lot on these seminars, because I think it's really important to be able to discuss your music. But sometimes there was quite a, there can be quite a macho culture. Mm. And I'm, as I said, sensitive, a sensitive boy, really. You know, I've come to learn that. I've come to learn how sensitive really I am. And sometimes our environments, putting our young musicians and composers, when they're still really young in this position where they're standing in front of their peers, the composers and performers of the future, you know, they will be the industry and saying, right, talk about your music, D- defend it almost. That's a really challenging environment for anyone who was not confident like me at that age.
0: Yeah, and um, this is something I do have an issue with. And there's definitely steps to change it, but it's something that's very close to my heart. But it's this idea of needing the psychological skills to mm. deal with that um, and the fact that. You know you've got to hear those criticisms in a certain way and know what to do with them and i think that that is not what's taught and you've got to kind of um you've got to feel terrible about it for it to to perhaps get better (laughs) or or, you know and and i think it's you're asking for young students to be really vulnerable Mm. um without necessarily giving them the scaffolding Mm. to deal with how that feels
1: Yeah, and I think you look at other countries and as I understand them, I look at my colleagues, my composer friends in other countries and look at their journeys and they're a lot more gradual. Right. I think there's this tendency in the UK to really hot house. Mm. You know, we've got these fantastic junior departments and some of them in this country are brilliant and really good at ensuring a diverse range of young people can access high quality music education. Um, But we need that for everyone. We need everyone to have the opportunity to present a composition aged 14, 15, have really gentle supportive feedback so that becomes normalised and then understand that people are at really different rates Mm. of kind of progress and where they are in terms of who they are, who they might become, what they might achieve with their music making and I think, if I had my time again, I don't have any regrets or anything I want to do differently but I would have perhaps spent even more time away from music or away from, sorry, education and then done my masks a little bit later. Yeah. Um, But I didn't really know people did that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because the options aren't out there for people to see. I'm I'm going to segue nicely from um, what you've just said and say, so who have you become and what does the career that you have look like now?
1: So I describe myself as a portfolio musician, but I think that's kind of not so true anymore because I am kind of refining this, composer world, you know, new music world. So my main work is as a composer. I do a lot of work with communities, leisure time music makers, young people, devising and creating work with them. That can be anything from, I'll write a piece of music for a youth choir. and might engage with them in advance, going, what do you want to write about? Through to this really nitty gritty kind of collaborative process where the communities I'm working with will make the lyrics and write the melodies and will carve out something together. And often it's opera or music theatre or choral music. Um, an example, actually, as I was coming here to Media City, I kind of got off the tram. Uh, I did a big piece for the BBC Philharmonic last year where I wrote a piece for the orchestra and community musicians. And those community musicians could be anyone who played any instrument at any level who turned up on the day and learned the piece in two hours playing alongside the BBC Phil on the plaza at Media City and on the second day there was like 300 people. That's one of my career highlights in the last few years or so that was a beautiful project and really lovely just to see everyone create music or create something alongside me and the orchestra in such a short space of time.
0: So why is that work important? Why do you do it?
1: I love collaboration. Um, I work collaboratively or I work best when I'm collaborating with anyone, other professionals, writers, theatre makers, or the everyday person who may have access to music or may not. I feel I have a responsibility as an artist to share practice, to engage with others, and music making for me is all about connection. So, And the hierarchies that exist in our the way we teach music is here's the composer, you will learn the composer. This is changing, but traditionally in the way that I was brought up is, you know, here's the composer, here's the sheet music, you will learn it thus. Um, what does that note mean? Why aren't you playing that note perfectly? Or actually, all these artists before you play these notes this way. And I think that feels really different from so many cultures and the way they engage with music and how even historically music was made. Like, we've come to rely on notation and these hierarchies in a way that just doesn't feel natural.
0: What would you say um, to somebody who said that the sort of composing you do is not as important, for want of a better word, as the composing that is done for the professional concert platform?
1: I think nowadays, thankfully, we don't really hear that there's people if they have their opinions they're keeping them to themselves yeah i kind of i mean maybe this is patronizing but i feel sorry for that point of view because if people have that belief then especially in this country with the way that funding's going and access to music education is going there won't be any of those opportunities in the future in this country and music like any other arts is an ecosystem everything exists Uh, happily together. I was at the RPS Awards, um, the Royal Philharmonic Society Awards. Nice Uh, drop-in. Yeah. (laughs) 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 A couple of weeks ago in February, which was a very, very strange. Little Michael, the kind of internal vulnerable Michael was going, what are you doing here? Imposter syndrome, (laughs) imposter syndrome. But what was beautiful about that ceremony, um, there was lots of great things about it. But the... Awards um, for, I think it was kind of leisure time music making or kind of an um, inspiration award, was given to a, an orchestra in Torbay and to have these fantastic musicians, this family of musicians actually, I think it was the conductor, uh, him and his family came up to collect the award, And you went, yes, this is what music making in the UK looks like. You've got Torbay Philharmonic Orchestra, I think was the name of the group, alongside some of um, the biggest names, Manchester Camerata, Manchester Collective, you know, dropping in a few Manchester groups there, of course. (laughs) But, you know, sitting alongside this leisure time music making group. And that is what music making is. And if you don't see it like that, yeah. I'm sorry, I feel a bit sorry for you.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I was obviously being provocative. Um, <laughs> of course,
1: not like you at all.
0: <laughs> because um, I really do think it's—I um, do think it's an issue we still have in this country, and whether it is kept quiet or not, um, I think there's this issue of horses for courses of, of realizing that there's different roles within the classical music industry or the and, and community music mm. all of which are important mm-hmm. all of which need skill some similar skill some different skill and um, I just my concern and, and my experience is sometimes that working in community music is not quite given the same respect um, and actually it's it's a really skilled job
1: I think it's changing though I think the conversations I've been having recently are filling me with a lot of joy because, and maybe it's assumptions I've made about the sector. Um, You know, I'm having conversations with people, you know, after concerts or after projects, going, actually, I want to be commissioning this work or this kind of work. and I want to be doing this and this. And they're running, you know, these big organisations that have a lot of funding that might traditionally be seen as the orchestra that does X and concert hall platform and concert hall music. But there's a lot of people going... No, we really do need to change. And maybe some of it's a little bit late. Yeah, some of it might be a little bit late, but it's happening those conversations are happening now and we're seeing a change, we're seeing it happen. So hopefully that's a thing of the past, the idea of this segregated music sector.
0: Good, it is hopeful. Now, I happen to know, because I have also worked with you on this, that you've got another string to your bow. Um, Tell me about that.
1: Alongside composing, I run a choir called the Sunday Boys, which is a low-voiced, open-access LGBTQ choir. When we say low voice, we mean tenor and bass range. Traditionally associated with male voice choirs, which we were once when we started, but being LGBTQ, we welcome anyone from our community and allies to come join us who sing with a tenor or bass, i.e. low voice.
0: And what has been your ambition for the Sunday Boys?
1: Well, I started in 2016 because I was getting, was hit, hitting my late 20s and not wanting to go clubbing anymore, <laughs> uh, which wasn't quite true. Um, but I wanted to do something that allowed me to meet other LGBTQ people that wasn't nightlife settings. Manchester's got a fantastic uh, gay scene, LGBTQ scene, and it's changed a lot since I've been here and diversified, again, still a long way to go. But I wanted to meet new people, use my skills as a vocal leader as well, and do something on a Sunday night to banish the Sunday night blues. To be honest, <laughs> so it was a really informal organisation to start, but it's grown because there was real demand for it. There was real demand for people to come and sing for well-being, but also for well-being but push themselves as well. So now we're around 80 members strong. You know, seven years later. And our mission and vision is to be repositioning what community choral singing can be. A lot of that is through commissioning works. So we commission a lot of LGBTQ composers uh, of all genres, and that's something we're doing much more regularly now. Almost every gig has a new composer or a new songwriter or artist. And just provide a space to talk about, well, what can you do as a community choir? What and there's loads of organisations around the country who are doing this amazingly, but it's a member-led, grassroots organisation. Our members run it, It's our board is made up of our members, pretty much, we have a few external uh, board members as well, but what happens if you give ownership to your communities to help programme, help commission, tell stories of our community that haven't been told really in choral song very much?
0: And so what's been the result of that? Just tell me sort of some of the highlights of some of the things you've achieved That's you know, pretty special.
1: Our first gig in 2017, or our first full-length gig, I should say, was called 50 Years of Change. And that was celebrating the 50th anniversary of the 1967 Sexual Offences Act, which was the act that partially decriminalised homosexuality in England and Wales. Uh, And that was our first moment where we went, oh my goodness, we can do some exciting things. We can commission great composers. We can do things that we never thought we could do. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've composed a lot for the choir. Um, we've done a project together, we which have. is beautiful. I mean, much <laughs> delay due to that little pandemic thing that happened. Um, but that happened last September. We brought it to life and that was the first time the choir sang with the orchestra. The first time I had written for, yeah... SATB and orchestra it was a big work for me and working with a very dear collaborator Rebecca Hurst and learning a lot from yourself of course it was really great to bring both both choirs together. So I
0: ran an upper voice choir which was uh, all female and uh, yeah we worked together on, um, on a project about platonic friendship.
1: Yes and it was one of those moments where when we were researching discussing it, it we were going, why hasn't there been something about this before? There's so many, of course, religious um, oratorios or cantatas, but there's nothing about exploring what it means to be a friend. Yeah, platonic friendships are just not celebrated in the same way. Um, And maybe it's that, again, we're trying to challenge as a choir what music should be about when you're singing with many voices and that's one of the projects that did that.
0: I also think um, what strikes me about the Sunday Boys is that you are very much singing music that is about experiences either of the choir or of the people that the choir know and it is very rooted in the LGBTQ community. What does singing in the Sunday Boys do for the members?
1: We know from our membership that choir is such an important part of their lives it's a family it's a community and you know many people come to choir in search of that community we know from our membership that sometimes people come out later in life that's something that happens more common than people think and lgbtq spaces that nightlife space is perhaps not what they want to be doing so they find an access point through music equally people may come to manchester for the first time and go, well, I like to sing, or I want to meet people, I want to make music, and they join a choir and they discover like-minded people. Our choir is, in terms of age, very diverse. We have everything from people aged early 20s through to 70s. We have a really wide range of socioeconomic backgrounds in that choir, which is something I'm very proud of. And, but people are friends across generations, and that's beautiful. But on top of that, the commissioning process, this is something I believe in all my work, so I do a lot of this as a composer myself. Sometimes it's really hard to have conversations about identity and who you are, especially with people in your community who might be different in other ways, uh, due to age or location like geography, as it were. Um, We can have those conversations about the LGBTQ experience and how hard that is, but also how joyful that is through our music making. Mm. So we bring in great artists that start those conversations and it's a safe space because we're doing it through our music making. We are celebrating that and exploring that through music making, holding each other through that process.
0: Mm. So from your experiences, both as a composer and through your work in the LGBTQ plus community, what would you change about the classical music industry? Not a small question this.
1: Not a small question at all. How long have you got? Um, I mean, I say that, and I say that uh, in jest slightly. I think sometimes I have a habit of thinking of what it was like 10 years ago. Yes. I think there are significant changes that have happened, which is so positive. And I'm seeing that in terms of the music that's coming through, the composers that are coming through the system, through the talent pipeline, the music that's being commissioned it's exciting. Yes, we've got so long to go. I talk about a talent pipeline. The challenge is, is that if you're not lucky, mm. or privileged through wealth, or and when I say lucky, you go to a school where there happens to be a good music department, yeah. which is often, sadly, where there's money. It means you don't get access to this brilliant world. And funding is limited in a practical sense the fact that our government believes xyz about what should be given and mm. given to the arts and education ideologically you could say there's a lot of money out there that could go towards music making but my big thing is going who is getting access mm. to music education yeah and as far as i can see there's less and less of it than there was when i started out in classrooms and community centers 10 15 years ago especially it should be happening from day one we should be seeing it in schools it should be every teacher should feel they have the confidence to sing in the classroom and when i'm doing cpds and do very 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 gentle introductions to how to sing in the classroom i get the response oh actually that's pitch patterning i can do that mm-hmm. oh okay i can sing, i can teach that song in my range and you suddenly realize there's not enough going on to support teachers Music services are doing a fantastic job, but there's just not enough resource, mm. supposedly. <laughs> mm. And then what we're going to see, we're going to see audiences. We're not going to see audiences in future for this work. We're going to, which is only part of the problem, but everyone has the rights to arts and everyone has the right to express themselves, explore themselves in that way, explore what the arts mean to them. Music has a particular function in the sense that It doesn't have to be words. It doesn't have to be um, cerebral. It can be a response. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking about a lot of the young people I see in schools who perhaps aren't, their brains aren't wired to do English, maths or science. And these young people sometimes absolutely come to life in the music session. And you go, but if that's not there for them... And the kind of skills that come around music making, if that's not there for them, you know, we learn more than just dots on the page or how to sing something or music can do so much more. And I know I'm going on, but I feel very strongly about this, that if we're not allowing that, we're not allowing young people to reach their full potential as humans.
0: Absolutely, I I couldn't agree more. And I I tell you what I've found quite interesting recently. We're talking at a time when The funding got taken away from the BBC Singers and from BBC Orchestras and hopefully it looks like there's going to be a bit of a U-turn but we don't know what that looks like yet. And people were in uproar and really were vocal in their support and choirs around the country were very vocal and that's great but why are we not having this same outcry for music education and i just wonder you know do people not know about how it's sort of in decline and has declined i don't know what are your thoughts on that
1: i think people don't realize that it is in decline Mm. i think because one can still access perhaps music lessons or they see music going on in the classroom or they see Uh, Or parents see at the end of term, they see a performance and they go, ah, that's the music making. And you and I know that that's different. That Mm. provides a different function. It's a different artistic outlet to kind of high quality music making, which in itself is a broad term. But, you know, knowing that you're upskilling a young person or whether you're offering them a co-creative opportunity, you know, that requires skills and knowledge from Professionals, I think it's the boiling frog thing, right? Uh, Whatever that psychological psychological experiment is. Do you know what I mean, the boiling frog? No, okay, fine. Uh, Maybe this won't make the podcast. But the kind of, if you put a frog in hot water, it jumps out immediately. Okay. If the frog is in cold water and you heat it up. Yeah. Yeah. I use this analogy far too often. But that's our reaction to things like the BBC Singers being cut. And that outcry is legitimate. We don't quite see you know, when the headlines are 50% and I'm making up these stats, 50% fewer people are taking music yeah. GCSE. That's kind of a, oh, okay. It's not something being yanked away. Yeah. It's that slow uh, so, destruction uh, yeah. of something. And I think we as humans don't react as strongly to that.
0: Yeah it's, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And it's um, it's something that I hope changes, but I'm not sure. I think some, there needs to be a bit of a, a revolution of some kind.
1: <laughs> I think also the challenge is now we have this 13 years of arts cuts yeah. and local council, we have to also remember that it's not just arts council, it's local councils who their arts budgets have been cut yeah. ridiculously. So the amount that has been cut for the arts is huge because there's a whole generation who haven't had access to that music education who are growing up who won't go perhaps to, or won't feel comfortable in a concert hall or won't have the opportunity to have explored music in a different way, so won't know the avenues or ways in. Mm-hmm. And you do see it like with the Sunday Boys. Actually, it's a really interesting example. You have certain age brackets where things like traditional skills in notation reading are much higher. Right. Or certain knowledge around a music genre is much higher. And interestingly, I think our uh, over 50s are much stronger in that area Ah. than our younger members. They're not less musical by any stretch of the imagination that's equal, but you do see different skills and open mindedness to different genres and different ways of thinking and just knowledge as well which is something, I mean this is again just me, you know anecdotally, but you do see a generation gap in terms of people's engagement with music in its broadest sense
0: but the sunday boys does something to address that gap doesn't it you don't kind of let people struggle you put steps in place tell me about that
1: we do our best to support our members as much as possible in their music learning so we had a musicianship weekend the other weekend we invited our mutual friend dr rebecca barkley <laughs> up to do some work um teaching people to read notation um, i say that it's more than that she kind of helps people's musicality or musicianship. So feeling the music, hearing it, understanding it and translating it off the page. When we do use sheet notation, we have weekends away. We go, what do you want to learn? What do you want to get better at? How do we help that? We have a vocal coach. We sing a really diverse range of music and we teach it in different ways as well.
0: It's really immersive, isn't it? And you have high standards and you expect people to get to them, but you put the support in place. Is that the sort of model?
1: We push young people to be the best that they can be. And that is something that we do in music. You and I know that. Yeah. We've been there. We've been in those environments. It's slightly like different adults sometimes. And like, it, I think it's harder because adults, are, their brains are more fully formed. They, they are perhaps, as one might say, set in their ways or they have their belief systems. But why shouldn't we be ambitious for our own community and the people we're working with? So I think there's something about going with open access choirs, young open access choirs, can achieve so much. So can adult choirs. Mm-hmm. It might take a little bit longer. We might have to do a little bit more work because we're not in that learning mindset that young people often are because that's how we you know, raise our young people. But we can get there. We can be ambitious for each other and we can support people to be the best that they're able to be.
0: Would you say that um, you impart ambition on the choir? And where was that ambition from? I suppose what I'm asking, is it through going to somewhere like a music college or a good university with a good music? Is that where that ambition and that high standard has come from? Or is that something you think that's innate in
1: you? Big question. I am a very ambitious person. I historically, and still now, am an overly ambitious person, but it depends how you define that. Like, do I take risks? Yes. Do I take on too much sometimes? Yes. Am I aware of that? Yes. I think in the early days of choir, I was overly ambitious and sometimes pushing people to perhaps my own agenda slightly um, and not always in the best way. And that's something that I've worked on, on myself and understanding that I'm not working with professionals. And that's not doing the choir disservice, because they are a phenomenally talented and wonderful group of people, but they're doing it in their leisure time. Do we attract people who are ambitious? Yes, but not everyone's there for that. So it is finding that balance constantly, but having that belief, having that long-term belief. Mm. I'm not expecting people, our recent gig, we had lots of new members of the choir who had to work really, really hard, mm. really hard. And I can see that in what they've achieved but it's thinking about supporting them. If they choose to stay with choir, which I really hope a lot of them do, and you know, we do have churn, that always happens, but it's supporting people over the long run because it's about allowing people to be the best they can be, but also being aware that's part of a community. It's not their job. It's what they do to release and to enjoy themselves and to connect with others where there might not be those opportunities um, and to express themselves through song
0: yeah i think um having led choirs myself it is a real balance isn't it between singing and being with people helps with mental health and with well-being Um, but then also being able to enable them to experience a real high standard of music making because that in itself is like so joyous and so brilliant and that can be the attraction of being in a choir, which is, I think, something you do with the Sunday Boys.
1: Yeah, and I think it was growing up, I didn't get the opportunity to sing. I sang in choirs, but, and I sang in musicals, but there's something about the wonderful precision and being as one, but being yourself in a choir There's a kind of belief of, you know, when we're working with choirs and getting them to the the best that we can, you know, we try and be as similar as possible. Now, everyone's physiologically different. They're going to make different vowel sounds. They come from different parts of the country. We can do that. But my belief is, how can we do everything as one whilst being ourselves? And there's nothing like that. I don't think, maybe dance compares something mm-hmm. similar, but there is some there's nothing better than being able to do something with your colleagues and friends and peers and community singing as one, taking that breath together, doing everything totally tightly Mm -hmm. and for an audience i think sometimes i forget (laughs) the audience because i'm just so thinking about right where does that t go where's that Mm -hmm. constant go how do i make that tight but doing it and celebrating yourself on that stage to people who may know your experience may not know your experience Mm -hmm. and learn from it is why choral singing and music making is so much. There's so much in it that we and we should celebrate all parts of it.
0: Yeah, and actually I'm thinking about the composing work that you've talked about and the community work that you do. It's the same thing, isn't it? You're yeah. enabling everyone to have a moment individually, but collectively. And yeah, it is really powerful.
1: It's great, and I think it's the whole thing about being able to sing and perform your own experiences. I mean, the thing that ties all my work together is celebrating identity and oneself through music making. It's why I work with text, it's why I work in opera and choral and voice. I do do instrumental work quite a lot and I love it, but it's going about what story are we telling? Whose story are we telling? How can we tell it? How can we perform it Mm. and celebrate ourselves? High quality music making, but also go, hey, this is me this is my story through song and yeah maybe this is a realization moment for me but that's what I do that's the thing that ties everything together it's like who am I and how do I celebrate that through music
0: fabulous I have got one last question for you
1: Mm.
0: what advice would you give to your younger self
1: take risks take more risks don't rush (laughs) I tell myself that now, so it's not, I'm still kind of young. I'm in my thirties. You're young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good, thank you. <laughs> I wasn't fishing, I promise. Um, but like, you don't have to rush. Yeah. And I see this a lot with, I see a lot of myself in younger composers, the frustration. And it is a really frustrating time, especially in this country, to be a composer. There are more and more of us training and fewer and fewer opportunities. But there is that real frustration of not getting where they think they should be Mm. and it's not a race and i've taken a really long time compared to some of my fantastic peers when i was studying who were kind of almost came out of the womb fully formed as composers (laughs) and they are brilliant that's what they are doing and do well that wasn't me i'm still finding out who i am as an artist but i'm getting closer and i think me thinking about not rushing and just enjoying it being present every commission is a gift And I have to remind myself, like, this is an amazing thing. You get to make music with and for other people. So I guess that's the big thing. Take risks. Try something new every single time because the world's not going to end if it goes a little bit wrong. If it goes horribly wrong, fine, we can pick ourselves up and learn, but a little bit wrong means it's good. And just don't rush. Enjoy the moment.
0: Michael, thank you so much for joining me. I've loved this conversation and um, I know that we could probably go on for another couple of hours. However, we do have to come to the end. Um, If anybody wants to find out about The Sunday Boys, where would they find out?
1: We're on all the socials. You can go to thesundayboys.com and all the information's on there. There's also lots of us on YouTube. Just type in The Sunday Boys and you'll find lots of videos of us performing.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Michelle. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Music Mavericks. A new episode will be landing on your podcast feed every week. So please listen, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It does help others find us. And don't forget to follow the pod on social media. On Insta, it's Music Maverick Pod and on Twitter, Music Maverick P. See you again.